Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our product, Qualia. Qualia is a comprehensive mental enhancement supplement designed to improve focus, mood, and flow state. Learn more about Qualia at neurohacker.com and use coupon code Collective Insights for $20 off your first order. Welcome to the Collective Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am joined, I'm very lucky to be joined by Dr. Bill Walsh here today uh, to share with the listeners of Collective Insights all of the amazing insights that Dr. Walsh has collected over the 30 years that he has been researching um, the area of mental health. So Dr. Walsh um, originally started working in the mental health field in the 70s. He's president currently of the nonprofit group, the Walsh Research Institute near Chicago, and a key scientist driving the development of nutrient-based psychiatry. His book, Nutrient Power, which I have right here to share with everyone, is uh, describes an evidence-based nutrient therapy system and is the result of over 30 years of research and clinical experience. He directs an international physician training program in the U.S. and Australia, teaching advanced biochemical and nutrient therapies, which are used by over 500 doctors throughout the world. I am lucky enough to be one of them. So I use Dr. Walsh's work in my practice, and it has been one of the most profound modalities that I have introduced to my practice. I have had patients come in um, thanking me uh, and thanking you, Dr. Welsh, saying things like they are nice to their kids and husband again. Or I had a little boy once come in and tell me after we got him on the nutrients that it felt like he had control of his brain after years of his brain controlling him. And these sort of stories are numerous. And I know that there's 500 other doctors that have similar stories where they've been able to help patients. And I want to hear more about how you got to where you are and, um, and your stories, the stories you'd like to share today and how people can get help from, from your work. Sure. Well, actually, what I'm doing was really a big accident. I'd like to be able to say I planned it all, but it's not true. I was working as a young scientist at Argonne National Laboratory near Chicago, and I got interested in, uh, in doing something for the community, community service, and I found myself um, at Stateville Penitentiary, which is one of the three, um, supposedly one of the three most um, difficult prisons in the United States. And uh, that happened because I happened to be I worked at Argonne, which had about 4,500 scientists and engineers doing research. And uh, we had a chess team. And I was president of the chess team. And uh, we had just won the Chicago Industrial League Championship. And I had a guy in our, in our group who kept nagging me, saying, we really need to keep sharp over the summer. Why don't we play the prison? I hear they've got a good team. So long story short, we went there. I brought in 12 scientists to play the 12, they had a big tournament at the prison where there are more than 4,000 criminals all competed to see who were the best. And we played their 12 best players. Wow. And wow. Uh, the, the, when we met these people, they, they were all, uh, most of them were African-American and they looked like they were gigantic and huge and big muscles. And except the guy I played was a mild-mannered white guy. And uh, so as we were playing, uh, I found out that he had just come off death row. Actually, I had the one who was the more dangerous person. 
And uh, uh, I won my match early and I asked him if there's anything I could do to help him. And then he went off and uh, with another guy and our, our match was over. And he, he made a long list on, on, a, on, a, on a pad of paper and I spent the next 18 years of my life working on that list. I became a prison volunteer. Within three years, I had 125 people um, joining me in the volunteer work from Argonne and from a local, local churches. And um, so we did regular, you might say, uh, garden variety, naive prison volunteer work. We, we found that uh, we were doing visitation. I, I, uh, we started a chess league where they were members and we had outside people coming in and we did a lot of that. But my education started when I realized if you're ever gonna help these people, it's when they get out of prison. So we started an ex-offender program, working with ex-convicts as they got out, trying to make sure that they had a job, had enough food to eat and a place to stay. Um, and and uh, it's, it's really a problem because uh, they might Everybody, somebody sitting in a cell for 10 years and then suddenly open the door and say, here's $50, uh, goodbye. Right. Uh, these are people who know how to make money fast. Um, and, and what happened is it happens is that um, people are afraid to hire them. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to make sure they weren't hungry and homeless because uh, that would be great temptation to resume their life of crime. So we got into that. And that was the beginning of my education. I got to meet the families that had produced the criminal, many of them. And to my big surprise, <clears throat> I found out that that uh, the parents, especially the mothers, said they were different from birth. There was something different about the child. And uh, I met some, some really nice families who had maybe four or five other children who turned out beautifully. And this one kid was different from the beginning. And I heard stories about how when uh, a, a two-year-old would start uh, torturing the family pet. Yeah. I met a couple of families who said that, that, that they had actually murdered the family pet. And the, the ch- their little tiny children were just frightening them and, and shocking them with their behavior. They were oppositional and they were defiant and they couldn't, and, and discipline didn't work. And so uh, we suddenly realized we didn't know what we were doing. There was we some sort of violent that. tendency from the very beginning. Yeah. And, and maybe you could it. crack that code. And so the question is, uh, why? Why are people violent? Uh, that was that was many years ago. That was more than 30 years ago, back when everybody thought that people were criminals because of a uh, poor environment or a lack of love or living in a, in, in, a, in a terrible neighborhood. And some of these people were from wealthy suburbs and seemed to be really nice families. And the rest of the family was fine. So we started, um, I started spending a lot of time in libraries studying psychiatry, human behavior, and uh, decided, I was an experimentalist. I was doing experiments of physics, nuclear work, and that sort of thing. And uh, I I really enjoyed experiments. So I thought, hey, why don't we do an experiment? Why don't we start checking out their, their blood and urine and tissue chemistry to see if they were different? And that's how it started. All happened by accident. And uh, we, I, we started doing formal double-blind controlled studies of, um, of criminals and then, and then people with normal behavior. And um, after the first year, we didn't find anything that was um, significant. We had a lot of data. It looked like a, we shot a 
shotgun and, and had a wall and he had points everywhere, but nothing correlated. Hmm. Until the day I met Dr. Carl Pfeiffer, who you may have heard of. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about how you guys teamed up. Well, he was at that time the, the world's most famous nutrient um, expert, you might say. And his, he, he was, he, he, the day I met him was at a conference he gave. He was just a speaker at Argonne. And I had never heard of him, but I went to his lecture and found out that he, he had been doing for 20 years with schizophrenics what I had just started trying to do with these people. And I, and I got to meet him the next day. And I explained the, the experiments we were doing. And when, he, when they announced him at the talk, they said that it had just been announced that he was nominated for a Nobel Prize in mm -hmm. medicine for his great work in schizophrenia. Well, um, so I, he told me he thought we were doing important work. And he, and he said that he recommended that we start focusing on, on trace metals. He said when he started his beginning work, the first thing that correlated were metals like copper, zinc, manganese, you know, a number of metals in the body. And he said they tended to be really abnormal in people with schizophrenia. Maybe the same thing would be true of these violent people. So we did that. And in fact, he was absolutely right. We found all kinds of crazy abnormal levels in, in these people. And we did a, I did a, my first experiment was a, um, um, a study where we, I found 24 pairs of brothers living in the same family where one was a, was a violent delinquent kid and the other was the, an all-American boy. Beautiful behavior, living in the same family, same food, same environment, breathing the same air, eating the same diet, general diet. Trying to and, control for some variables. Yeah. And when we broke, when we broke the code... Uh, the first thing we found was that the violent people all had really high levels of toxic metals, like lead, cadmium, mercury, but their brothers didn't. But their exposure was the same. Interesting. That was the first thing we found. And we eventually understood exactly what that meant. People who, who have this, this tendency for violence are born with vulnerability to, to oxidative stress, and, to, and, and they, they don't process toxics. Properly. So they don't detoxify. So even though they have the same exposure level, they hang on to some of these chemical toxins yeah. these, or these metal toxins and can't get rid of them. Exactly. But but beyond that, we found, I, was, I kept staring at this data, studying the data. The other levels were abnormal, but there were different kinds. And uh, so eventually one morning at breakfast, I realized I had two different patterns, two different types and they came, fell into two classes. Eventually, I learned that the two classes, one of them were the sociopaths, the antisocial personality people, the people who are career criminals. Mm -hmm. And the other group were people who, uh, who had, were not able to, to control their, their, their temper. And they would go into rages, intermittent uh, uh, explosive disorders, what psychiatry called it. So and I, you could see we, this in the data, in the labs. Yeah, clearly, they, they, they separated into these two groups. And, and that's where we started. And uh, then I started um, testing more and more of the ex-convicts. Pfeiffer heard about this work and got really interested. And he said, why don't you send some criminals to me in Princeton, New Jersey, where his big lab was in his clinic. And I did. And I, the first time we brought him uh, five ex-convicts fresh out of Stateville, it included a guy who had been a hitman and apparently had killed about 20 people. Um, uh, so I'm with these five people. We took a plane to Princeton. Um, we stayed in the Holiday Inn. Princeton, How brave North. of you. You were um, just working with uh, the worst pathology. We were in two different, we were, we had two different rooms and 
three in one room, three in the other. I shared a bed with a guy who, when he took his shirt off, he had bullet marks right down his oh chest where he had lost the shootout with, a, I think, a police helicopter. And uh, anyway, that was a very interesting trip, as you can imagine. I can imagine. But, but when Pfeiffer tested them, he got excited because he said they're all the same. What did he I, see? Well, I had selected only the people with the sociopathic pattern, the ones who were the, the um, you know, antisocial personality disorder mm-hmm. people. And uh, he said they were all the same. He said they're all very zinc deficient. So they all have elevated histamine, and which meant they're under-methylated, mm-hmm. severely under-methylated. They had low spermine levels. We never understood that until about five years ago when we realized spermine has a lot to do with the NMDA neurotransmitter. Uh, and so they, they, they all had elevated toxics compared to normals. And so they had these are things like lead and mercury, or at that point, were you looking at chemical toxins or mycotoxins or just the heavy metals? No, we were looking at that. We were doing, uh, Pfeiffer's, um, protocol test that he had set up for, for schizophrenics. And, and so, but he said, they're all the same, which was really interesting. They all had the same odd combination of abnormal chemistry. And, and so I thought that was pretty exciting. You were onto something. But the big surprise was as I was leaving, so I, I, uh, I said goodbye, and I was about to walk out the door. He said, wait, you can't leave. He said, um, you need this. And he handed me five pieces of paper. He said, these are their treatment programs. Well, at that point, I was just studying violence. I wasn't thinking of oh. treatment. He had written treatment programs. He said, every one of these imbalances they've got um, are correctable. How amazing. How hopeful. His exact words were, they should do this. They'll feel better. Yeah. Well, so I went to his dispensary where he had a you know, big supply of vitamins and nutrients and whatever. And um, so I got, I got them each a six-month uh, supply. And we went back, uh, flew back to the Chicago area. And um, that's how we started. Those were the first people that were treated. They were all... Um, Pretty, pretty. Uh, in fact, I, I at, at a diner the night before, I took a placemat, a paper placemat, and on the back I wrote all the all the major crimes: murder, attempted murder, uh, aggravated assault, assault, rape, uh, on and on and on. And um, I asked one of the, one of the one of the criminals if he would go to the others, and I wanted to know for science. I wanted to know the total number of crimes that they had committed, but I didn't want to know who did any of it. But I wanted right. to know. Total, and so I eventually got that thing back, and it was pretty shocking. Mm. I mean, there were I think eighteen or twenty, twenty between twenty and thirty murders, several attempted murders, rapes was over three hundred, um, on and on, all these and theft. And, and so, how did they so do that? after they got on treatment? Well, um, four of them, four of the five actually did the treatment. Okay, then that's one normal. Got, the one, the one who was a professional hitman decided not to do it. Hmm. I don't know what happened to him. The other four all said they really responded beautifully. And um, so... Um, I that, would say that, that's consistent with my clinical practice. There's about four out of five people who will commit to the program and do it. And they see benefits. They see a change. And then there's always a few people that just I, either aren't interested or they don't feel like they can afford it. There's some barrier in the way that keeps them from fully committing to the program. And then it's hard to get it to work if you don't take it, if you don't take, do the treatment. 
the news wasn't all good. Uh, one guy who uh, I knew very well actually became one of our best volunteers. And he would help us evaluate all the criminals as they came out so we know who the pedophiles were and the sex criminals and that our volunteers would be, we would be careful. You were really working with the cream of the crop, huh? I got to know them very well, yeah. And uh, we were really good at finding jobs for them. Yeah. Um, in Chicago at that time, uh, to be a limousine driver, all you needed was a good driving license with a good driving record. Well, these guys had been in prison for like 10 years. They had no tickets. <laughs> they had no chance to get a parking so, ticket. That's great. There was one, there was one guy, it was with a guy named Randy, who was one of the first five. Um, he was driving the limousine. He got to meet these executives, and one guy hired him. Wow. And, and within, within a couple of years, he had actually advanced, and he was president of international sales for wow. a large corporation. And he told me he, he couldn't believe he could make so much money without stealing. That's great. Yeah. And I, you know, Neurohacker Collective and what we do, what I do, the reason I practice the medicine I do is because what we want to, our goal is to unlock that potential so that people can give their gifts to the world so that they can see what they're yeah. capable of so that they can give back so that they can reach that highest potential that, that exists for them and not be struggling yeah. in incarceration or just spinning their wheels, not feeling like they're ever satisfied or, or fulfilling that. So that's, yeah, go ahead. What happened to us then was uh, Pfeiffer got excited about this, and he said, send me more. So eventually, uh, in the 1980s, we, we did about, we shared 500 violent people, people with, with severe violent problems. And, and what we learned was that we did outcome studies, and we found we weren't doing that well with, with ex-convicts, but we did great with violent children. Our outcome studies showed that about 90% of violent children, and some of them are extraordinarily violent, extraordinarily violent, uh, that that they they not only got better, but it seemed to be enduring. And hopefully and prevent we, them from getting into that incarceration pattern yeah. and into violence that's, as an adult. I still hear from some of them years and years later, mm, and they great. say they're still okay. So so uh, and we found something else that with those 500. We found that some of the children, many of the ones who had problems with behavior, also had problems with attention deficit, or learning problems, academic problems. And, and we got story after story of remarkable improvements, not just their behavior. Suddenly, they seemed to be smarter and did look better in school. So we, from that point on, we started doing both uh, behavior and ADHD. And then along the way, um, every time I would see Pfeiffer in Princeton, he would say, Bill, what we really need is a an outpatient clinic in the Midwest for behavior and learning. And eventually I realized he meant me. So <laughs> I, I founded, I founded uh, uh, the Health Research Institute, and then we opened a clinic in, 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 in Illinois. And eventually that clinic saw 30,000 people. Wow. And as I was doing the clinic, we just, I decided, by the way, Carl Pfeiffer died just before we opened the clinic. Oh, how sad. He was going to be our doctor the first six months and actually do the treatment programs mm -hmm. reopened. So we named it after him. Um, so that's how we started. And as we be, as we were getting into it, people recognized the name Pfeiffer. And schizophrenia families started coming to us. So we started doing that. And then one thing led to another. We we did be, uh, depression, bipolar disorder. And then finally, autism. And you recently gave a talk at the American Psychiatric, Psychiatric Association, is that right? And that was on bipolar disorder and some of your new thoughts around bipolar. Would you mind sharing some of your insights? 
I'd be happy to. That was exactly one month ago. We were at the Javits Center in, in, in uh, New York City, and the APA, this is the big meeting of the year for the world in psychiatry, they had 17,000 psychiatrists in the same building. It's an interesting group, by the way. And I had been working for four years with a good friend and a, a, a um, psychiatrist, a, a renowned psychiatrist on bipolar disorder, mainly because I was frustrated because I didn't understand it. Uh, I wrote a book called Nutrient Power that, I, that you just showed. Um, there are chapters that are on depression, schizophrenia, behavior disorders, Alzheimer's. There's no chapter on, bi on bipolar. And the reason was six years ago, I didn't think I knew enough about it to write a chapter. And it's the most mysterious disorder of all the major disorders. For example, um, the question is, why is it that a person can be quite normal and then around the age of 18 or 20 suddenly become manic? Right. Why is it that bipolar doesn't go away? What, despite all the therapies that have been done for the last 50 years, once you have that onset, there's a problem the rest of your life. And, and then other questions like, why is it that the mania after onset gets worse and worse and worse, and then very suddenly descends into depression, right. which can be suicidal depression, and then they may have to struggle for months with depression, and then they, then they, they, they switch back up to mania. What's going on in the brain? What could possibly cause this? Another thing is that it's the most heritable of all disorders. It runs in families stronger. And it's close to 90%. If you have identical twins and one becomes um, bipolar, it's, it's almost 90% that the other will. It's beyond any other disorder. Why? Especially since they've done gene studies. Mm -hmm. And there is not a bipolar gene. No one could ever find a bipolar gene, even though it runs in balance. Well, um, about four and a half years ago, my, my psychiatrist buddy and I, who, uh, we, by the way, we have uh, lunch once a week, and I've been doing this for like 15 years, we decided, especially me, I decided I want to just dive into this. There's all this new neuroscience advances. I mean, there's remarkable yeah. advances yeah. in understanding how the brain works. And it hasn't made it, that, that's got great information, but it has not made its way into clinical practice yet to help people. So I, I thought I'm going to just spend, you know, as much time as it takes. To dive into the literature and see where we can apply it clinically. And I got lucky. I believe we found what bipolar is. We found a single condition that is responsible for the cycling between mania and depression. I think we know exactly what it is. We, and we also, we've been able to answer what is it? all. <laughs> and so we, we revealed this. Uh, the, the title of my, of my talk was um, A Neuroscience Theory of Bipolar Disorder. And I'd be happy to answer any questions about it, but it, I, we think we've got it. And uh, some of the psychiatrists, so you know, a lot of them came by to discuss this with me, and they all seemed disappointed because we didn't have a therapy. We were, we, yeah, that would be my next question, is if there is a patient who's suffering from bipolar disorder, what can they do? Um, is there someone they yeah. can re reach out to? Are there is there a group of psychiatrists? Are there clinicians that you think would be more helpful than others? Is there something, a paper they should read or look into? Well, I've personally worked with 1,600 people diagnosed with bipolar disorder over the years, and we did our best to help them, and we, we did pretty good. They, the family said that we had given them some partial improvements, but it was kind of disappointing. And to me, the problem is, how do you fight an enemy if you don't know who or what it is? Yeah. And so our contribution... At this, at this talk I gave a year ago, uh, a month ago, 
was basically to expose it and, and, and to show exactly what it is. So all the all the new research and all the attempts to develop new, new treatments can be, you know, just targeted right at what we know is wrong. Do you have, an, have a description that a layman could understand about that the theory? Well, uh, let me try. I've, I've, I've gotten a little better at this since I've been explaining it to a few hundred We've people. We've got some really smart listeners, too. Okay. Well, let me give you a quickie description. Uh, one of the most remarkable aspects of, of human life is that we have 80 billion brain cells, 80 billion neurons. That's a huge number. It's roughly equal to the number of trees in, in half, half of the U.S. It's incredible. And, but what's really remarkable is every one of those neurons can get a really big voltage. Psychiatry calls it a, a potential, a resting potential. Mm-hmm. Before it fires, the voltage is really high. In fact, if you, even though you've got 80 billion of them, if you took 20 of them and strung them together in series, you'd have enough voltage for a flashlight battery. It's remarkable. It really is. Now, it turns out that there are more than 200 genes that collaborate to enable this, to enable this, these voltages. And what we, what we found is that if you have uh, environmental insults that can change the epigenetics, that can, that can permanently change, uh, if you have an insult, which could be uh, emotional insults, we now know that emotional trauma can permanently change gene expression. If it's really severe, that's what happens in post-traumatic stress disorder. So high stress environment. It can permanently change gene expression, change your brain chemistry, your body chemistry, and and maybe a hundred genes will start misbehaving. And so that's the onset. And uh, and what happens is that it causes part of the brain to no longer be able to get the full correct voltages. And when you have uh, less than normal voltages, that means mania. Interesting. Mania, because the, 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 you don't need as much neurotransmission from other, other neurons to make a cell fire. So you, that's, that's well known. If, you, if that voltage were to drop for any reason, you would have mania. So that's why mania begins. Well, during it all, the, the key really has to do with ion channels and glial cells. Familiar with that? Glial cells yeah. are we have we have roughly 80 billion glial cells in our brain, and they they form a network. They have gap junctions and they form a network, and actually that's how, how our neurons are nourished. The they, the these these um, glial cells wrap like bat wings around the capillaries and bring nutrients to the neurons. Well, what also happens? The problem is that every time a neuron fires. Some of your, some of the, some of the potassium inside that neuron leaves the neuron. The reason, the, by the way, is potassium dominates the voltage. Okay. The, the okay. voltage, the voltage in your, in your, in your brain cells, is based on the gradient between the potassium inside the cell and the potassium outside. You have 20 times as much inside as you do outside. Okay. So With the problem you. is, when you, when you have mania. The cells are firing more more quickly. You get you get an unusually high amount of potassium leaving the neurons, and parts of the brain can't handle that. And eventually, you flood it with potassium on the outside, 
and you no longer can can make you can't can it's like you've got a battery that's gone dead and this explains and those swings what, from mania to hypomania or mania to depression mania to depression yeah and um and and we believe that it's probably the rapey system that stops functioning that's the that's the that's where all the where all the serotonin comes from I so see. if that were to happen all the serotonin you the whole brain would be sort of starved of serotonin and low serotonin activity we know has that's a recipe for depression. For depression. So Dr. Walsh, I have to tell you that one of the things that's impressed me about you so much is your openness, that whenever anybody asks a question, and if you don't know the answer, if it doesn't fit into what you're doing, you say, hey, you know, I'm going to have to look into that. I want to learn more about it. I'm not going to say no. And in this field where there's so many egos to sort of filter through, you have are just one of the kindest, most open, most generous spirits that I, I've seen out there. So I just want to say that I appreciate that. And also, I can see how that influenced what you You've learned about bipolar disorder, right? You have been studying the nutrients for so long and the the yeah. biochemistry. And here there is this explanation that's really about the the electrochemistry and the electrical potential of the brain and how there's a there's explanations probably in that. And the conventional psychiatry world is definitely focused more on these neurotransmitters and how do we manipulate serotonin or GABA or this one molecule and receptors and at this very specific and, to be honest, in my opinion, not very sophisticated way, trying to manipulate just single nutrients or, or single neurotransmitters. And here you are looking at the nutrients in this very complex way, but making it simple and applicable, practical for patients, and then also open to exploring the electrical chemistry and all the potential that there is there. Because that's half the brain, right, is, is the electrical piece. I, I used to be a uh, electrochemist. I once was head of a group at Argonne National Laboratory trying to develop batteries. It's coming back full circle. Yeah, I, I, who, would have, who would have thought that would happen? I actually uh, invented and have the original patent on the lithium battery. Oh my gosh! For which I for which I got for which I got fifty dollars. Oh no! I was going to say you better be a rich I got, man. I got what's known as well. The government owned everything. Oh wait, yeah. Argon, right? Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, what, but, what but, yeah, I think the the one key is for people who are really interested in how the brain works, you really need to dig into glial cells. Glial it's cells. A revolution in neuroscience, a complete revolution. They they used to believe that the glial cells were just there to support these 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 very delicate, fragile neurons, and now we know and and they for a hundred years. Uh, psychiatry is focused on what happens between the what they call a presynaptic neuron and the postsynaptic, that is the two neurons that are talking to each other. Well, now they know it's not a, a binary system, it's a tertiary system. Yeah. The glial cells are directly involved. They have to rewrite all the textbooks. I, I bought a textbook, a famous, uh, um, a, new, a new version of a famous textbook that came out last year, and I, I got it in November, uh-huh. and I read it. It's already obsolete. Out of date. Yeah. It's well, obsolete. At least we have the interwebs. We can update Wikipedia. There are wonderful things about to happen because the knowledge is now there and it's gonna it's gonna develop it's gonna result in really great treatments. Good. I'm so excited to hear that. What are your thoughts about neurofeedback? Do you think that that plays a role here? It it, it does help quite a few people. It doesn't usually cure people unless they have a mild condition, but Neurofeedback, I've never met a uh, schizophrenic or a bipolar patient or an autistic patient that became normal uh, or you might say cured or, or, or 
by neurofeedback. However, a lot of them are health, and, and so it lessens their misery and lessens their handicaps. Uh, it also tends to fade away with time. So it's, if, you, if you do the neurofeedback and the uh, person gets better, uh, it takes only about two or three weeks uh, for them to go back to where they were. You need to be on a maintenance why, program. Why they like to do the maintenance and keep doing yeah. it over and over you know, I want to ask a bit about methylation. You you mentioned methylation and histamine, and there's been a lot of popularity around um, 23andMe, getting your genetic SNPs tested. Amy Yasko sure. and Ben Lynch have contributed a lot to that field and how to interpret that. What is your take on that? Do you think that looking at COMT variants and MTHFR variants is very helpful, or do you think that there's a better way to look at that? How would you approach someone who maybe had their 23andMe and wanted to say Dr. Walsh, what how, what do I do with this? Well, what you what what the twenty three andMe and uh, genetic testing does is it identifies abnormalities in the DNA, in the DNA itself. In other words, uh, and they call these things SNPs, and what they really are is mutations. Over the centuries and over the millennia, uh, these things have developed in certain parts of the pop of different populations, and. Uh, we have now identified 10 million SNPs in the human genome. Well, these tests only test a few hundred. But, but there are some important ones, like the, the MTHFR, it, that is a gene. And it's a gene that produces the MTHFR enzyme that's part of the methylation cycle. And it's, it's, a, it's a big guy. It's, it's got 500 amino acids. And, and what a SNP is, is one of those 500 amino acids in the wrong place. These molecules are three-dimensional, and, and it turns out that that happens to be the, um, if you have a, what they call homozygous, if, you have, if both copies of your DNA strand have the same, the same SNP, which they call 677T, 677, that's just the number of, of the, you know, the 5,000 amino acids they identify. This is number That's the location. That's the address. It's, it's sort of an address. On, on your DNA. But anyway, um, if you have that, it's, it means that that enzyme is going to be weakened. And, and, and if you have that, you're probably going to be undermethylated. However, you not everybody with that is undermethylated because there are, what 23andMe fails to do are two things. One thing is it doesn't, it doesn't help you. It doesn't identify the mutation SNPs that tend to, to over-methylation. Ah, so can, yeah, you can you help us square that? How do we look at this? A in a tug of war. It's a tug of war between the MTHFR and the methionine synthase and the, and the enzymes that tend to, for under-methylation, you also have SNPs that tend toward over-methylation. So you've got this methylation cycle that's supposedly putting out all the SAMI, uh, the, the, the methylating chemical to to handle all these 80 plus really important methylation reactions in the body. Well, what happens if those, uh, if, if they're not utilized very well? It turns out that one of those 80 reactions uses more than half of all the methyl. And if that's weakened, if that has, that requires enzymes. And if they have SNPs, you can have a glut of SAMI. And that's over-methylation. And so to really evaluate this properly, you have to, you have to know not only that you've got an MTHFR or, or a 1298 uh, SNP that's tending toward under, it doesn't mean you're going to be under methylated if you've got it. 
not your means you probably will be, but you may not be. And I've met people, I've tested people who had homozygous MTHFR who were over methylating. I have too. And so the tests that we look at to look at that phenotype, what's actually expressing in the body. So even more important than that, Mm -hmm. the second thing that's really important is that you cannot evaluate a person just by looking at their methylation. You have to look at methylation and epigenetics together. Mm -hmm. You have to, because otherwise you'll get the wrong answer. In other words, if just to give you an example, um, people talk a lot about the COMT SNP. Right. Okay, and, and that's, and that's a, that COMT is where your dopamine, with the assistance of the, of the comp enzyme, methylates. You have, you have, you have a methylation reaction where the, the dopamine plus SAMI results in something else. It's the way you get rid of some of the get dopamine. Get rid of the dopamine, yep. So, so all the people, including uh, the people, some of the names, the people you mentioned, and a lot of a lot of really good uh, um, clinicians and doctors and all, if they find that find that you've got a a, um, a SNP that slow, that that um, the COMT variants, yeah. Their, their conclusion is if you give if you give this person SAMI or methionine. You're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna over uh, destroy the dopamine and you're and you're gonna be and you're just gonna be low dopamine. But the reality is, if you give those people methionine, you will increase dopamine activity. Oh, interesting. Because of epigenetics, epigenetics, which has to do with the regulation of gene expression. Hmm. And and so there there are there are thousands of people now being treated improperly because of their methylation of the, the correct evaluation of their methylation. And I think this this was really important for me to understand is that there's two places where these nutrients are really doing the bulwark of the work, right? So it's, it's happening with the neurotransmitter, like dopamine that you mentioned, and then it's also going into the cell and going into the Gen, into the genetic material, and it's changing yeah. what's getting expressed. So there's two yes. places where these are, are working. So I, I think sometimes we oversimplify, and we are only thinking about the neurotransmitters, how dopamine or serotonin or GABA or something like that is, is affected, and we forget that the gene is going to be affected. So what's going to get turned on or turned off will change. And this is really unfortunate because we learned 30 years ago that the amount of neurotransmitter is not What's really important? Before that, they were they were developing drugs and developing. Uh, they're giving people tryptophan, and and the uh, the drug manufacturers are making MAO inhibitors like Nardole uh, to to cause there to be more serotonin for depressed people. And and in 1985, more more than 30 years ago, they learned that's not really what's important. What's really important is reuptake. Right. So when a when a, when a uh, serotonin cell shoots out serotonin into the synapse, what really counts is how fast does it go back. Yeah, how long does it stay in the synapse? Yeah, and and what's really important uh, for that is how many passageways do you have in that, what they call the presynaptic neuron, where where it first came from. And and there are little little passageways where the the serotonin tries to go right back where it came from. Mm -hmm. And that's why they developed Prozac and Paxil. All the SSRIs. Serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm-hmm. Well, what we do, we, what we found is with epigenetics, we can we can control the genetic expression of those transport proteins that are the passageways. Can you talk and, about the role of folate in that? 
Yes. Uh, what people don't realize is that with, F with respect to depression, folate helps improve methylation. Samian methionine. Now, is that true for methylfolate as well as a, a folic acid, a non-methylated folic acid? They all improve methylation. Okay. The methylfolate is a bit more effective. Okay, so, so methyl and folate work together in, in improving methylation, and, 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 and uh, the methylfolate is usually uh, more effective for most people, but not for others. With, with respect to epigenetics, with respect to neurotransmission, SAMI and methionine are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, just like Prozac and Paxil. So they're natural substances that do the same thing and act on the same transport proteins as these medications. Folate is the opposite. Folate drives serotonin activity down because of epigenetics. So if you've got a person who's underventilating and they've got depression or obsessive compulsive disorder or bipolar, and these are undermethylated people. If you give them any form of folate, they will get worse. Okay, so if they go in and they see a doctor and they look at their 23andMe and there's an MTHFR variant, but they've got any one of those, uh, they've got a depressive symptom, and yeah. they get on methylfolate, is there a chance that that will make their depression worse? The likelihood is it will make them terribly worse. Mm. Because if, if, if their main problem is serotonin, low serotonin activity. If that's the case, they will get worse. And do you think However, in depression that that's a good explanation, that low serotonin activity is a good explanation for depressive episodes or depressive symptoms? Well, uh, two years ago, I gave a paper at the APA where I showed them, where I explained to them I had the world's biggest chemistry database for depression, and that depression is really uh, what I call an umbrella term and that there are really at least five completely different kinds of depression. 38% of them are the low serotonin variety. There are others that have an overload of, uh, of, of, of copper. That's 17% of all people with clinical depression basically have a mental problem. A lot of the women, especially, right? You see that more yeah. commonly in women. 98% uh, of them are women. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a female thing, and it has to do with estrogen. But uh, so, so low serotonin is, is, is what is a misconception by psychiatry all over the world. If you if you are diagnosed with clinical depression, almost anywhere you go, the first thing they want to do is give you an SSRI, a serotonin increaser, you know, a reuptake enhancer, and um, it'll work for 38% of them really well. There's and a lot of a big chunk that it's not going to work for. Yeah, three of those forms they don't get better, they don't get worse, nothing happens, and then the fourth one. These are the people who get worse. We can, pre, we can, they can. Uh, so what I did when two years ago, I urged psychiatrists to do this testing before they gave anyone an antidepressant, and and that 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 inexpensive testing that would only cost about a hundred bucks. Yeah, well. They could find out who would do well on an SSRI and who would do better on a benzodiazepine. And what test is that? Well, the the one of my favorite tests is the. The, the methylation profile by doctor's data. Mm -hmm. The SAMSA ratios. Yeah, and, and uh, although it's not perfect, 
And another possibility would be to do a whole blood histamine test, which has been done for 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and and they, each of them, each of those tests have is not perfect, but they, they give you fairly good evidence. They're and it's markers. better than no test at all, probably, and just guessing. And the good news is that uh, people who are undermethylated were born undermethylated. That had to do with their gene expression that was that was in, in, imprinted before they were born, and they have symptoms and traits that are different. In other words, an undermethylated person, almost all of them are strong-willed, competitive, um, they tend to be more slender, they, 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 uh, they have 75% of seasonal allergies. We, we, know the, um, we, we know the characteristics of people who are undermethylated and people who are overmethylated are talkative, friendly, social, they, not competitive, they, they volunteer for wonderful causes, um, but there, there's, so that assists the diagnosis of methylation. So we have the tests that are pretty good, and plus we have the, the, the medical exam. The, the and looking at the characteristics. Study. And so we're, we're, I think we're quite accurate. I think we're over 95% accurate, and it makes, and you need to know whether a person's overmethylated or undermethylated. And if you take an overmethylated person and give them folates, folate, they will get worse. And if you take a, and if you take anybody who has, who is sick because of low serotonin activity, you must not give them folates because they will get worse. They, what happens to these people is their methylation will improve and the patient will get terribly worse. Right. Yep. I've seen it. I've seen it clinically. So if someone yeah. is struggling, one of our listeners is struggling or they have a family member or loved one that's struggling with some of these symptoms we've been discussing, how could they find a provider that you've trained? Well, um, you mentioned that we've done 500. We've been busy this year and uh, already this year we've trained, we, we trained another 180. So oh, we're now over great. 600. Uh, wow. My goal is to have a thousand doctors throughout the world uh, doing this and we're, we're going to get there pretty soon. We might have to up, raise our, our sites on that. Uh, we have our, our website, which is walshinstitute.org, or if you just Google Walsh Research Institute, we have a, um, we have a uh, on our website, we have, uh, you can click on the part that talks about services, and you'll see, a, you'll see a list of, I think we now have maybe a hundred or a couple hundred USA doctors uh, listed who, who, um, who know how to do this? People and you can are, search by zip code or something like that to find so a provider give, near we you. Contact, we give the contact information. Great, good, good, good. Time, you know, some, are, some, some of them focus on on schizophrenia. Some focus on autism. Some some do all kinds of patients. You know, we you can do that. And if anybody wants to really know about uh, the, the system, the, the the book Nutrient Power is still valid. I think it's very valid. It's been six years since I wrote it. And it's standing up really well. In fact, it's now available in seven languages. Wow. You know, and, and this month, the Polish version just came out. You're helping people all over the world. I love it. We do. So, uh, so that is, and, and if you get on our website, we have, we have a lot of YouTubes and a lot of lectures. And, and You've done and a great job. I typically recommend that my patients check out your YouTube videos because uh, you label them very well <laughs> too. So if you, you know, if you struggle with depression, but not so much anxiety or bipolar doesn't come up in your family, then you can usually tell by the title of the talk what you're going to be focused on. And if, if you're curious about methylation, there's some great talks about methylation because uh, that one comes up quite a bit. Dr. Walsh, I wanted to just 
switch the conversation into more optimization. So we have a lot of listeners as well who are looking to get more out of their day-to-day lives, more out of work, more out of their time with their families. Do you ever work with people in a way that helps them to optimize their brain function? Maybe they don't have big complaints of anxiety or depression or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but they, they don't feel like they're firing on all cylinders. Is there anything you can do for them? We have done that at times, and uh, basically the, our goal is to take, you know, some people have mild chemical imbalances, and they get along quite well, but they're not as good as they could be, and so we like to normalize these chemistries, normalize their brain and their body function and their chemistry. Uh, we've done a lot of that. We've done a lot of it in, in experiments where you have controls and you have sick people. Um, for one thing, the whole population would benefit if they didn't almost everyone would benefit if they did a really good job of antioxidants. Antioxidants. You yeah, what are some of those? Well, it can be simple things like vitamin C and vitamin E and vitamin A. Um, and I think zinc is really important. Uh, we, we've now tested 30,000 people and we've tested thousands of normals. And uh, we know the optimum level of zinc in the body is between 90 and 120 micrograms per deciliter in your blood. And that's plasma. plasma or serum when Actually, you're measuring? You need, oh. plasma, you need plasma to get a good serum zinc uh, has too many mess ups. Uh, they're not able, you, you get you, you cross contamination because of the wrong tube. Okay, so, so the goal plasma. is a plasma zinc between 90 and 120. 120. And, and a person might be feeling pretty good, but they might be down to 80 or 70. And, uh, and what happens is it'll shorten their life. Will be more prone to more prone to dementia, more prone to cancer, more prone to, to, to heart disease. And so they'll live better, longer and feel better if they get that fixed. You know, when clinically I, I've seen that people's skin will clear up if they struggle with acne and we get them on the right amount of zinc. Men will have their testosterone levels come up and so they'll feel a bit more energy. The zinc seems to affect lots of systems in the body, so just like the B vitamins and the methyl donors. Every system in the body seems to be affected by the nutrients that you've picked out, not just it mental does. health. It does. And uh, I got lucky when I brought the five criminals, that first group, to Pfeiffer. He made me go through the testing. And he took a big bottle of blood from me and analyzed my chemistry. I didn't want to do that, but you don't say no to Dr. Pfeiffer. And uh, I, he, I found out I am was born with great zinc deficiency. Oh, no. But I, you're not a sociopath. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty nasty on a handball court or a racquetball court, but I'm not a social player. Um, I thought I take 100 milligrams of zinc a day, and it's just barely enough. To get 100. To wow. So these are big it's, doses that you're talking about. Does anyone ever worry about reducing their copper too much? Because copper is also really important, and copper and zinc compete to some degree. And you, it, you need enough copper for your thyroid to function, for lots of things to work in the body, mitochondria, certainly. So what do you do to balance zinc and copper? Well, we like to balance them both. We know what is ideal for copper. Copper, the ideal would be somewhere between 70 and 90. So a bit like less a, than the zinc. That would be the ideal. And so there, we, we are pretty good at normalizing this. And you're right. If we, if we uh, weren't to pay attention to copper and gave people, uh, people who were zinc deficient, and gave them quite a bit of zinc like myself. Um, see, most people don't need to be zinc. I say, a lot of people don't. They, they get enough of their diet. But if you have a genetic problem, it's, it, we think it has to do with SNP mutations in the metallothionine mm-hmm. protein, which I think I have. 
I've got two brothers that are that one was six three and the other was six six. Well, I'm five eight. I always wanted to be a basketball center, and my zinc deficiency did me in. Now you have to play racquetball. Yep, I was okay at that. Actually, I won I won the uh, state championship in Illinois in racquetball about ten years ago. So we got to watch out for you at chess and racquetball. Um, better racquetball player than chess player. I was okay at this. <laughs> Anyway, so, um, so with this individuality, mm-hmm. all right. so it's important to test. We're so at home, um, fingernails, right, are a great way to look for zinc deficiency, or they're one of the ways that might be a flag where somebody might want to get tested. Is if you see the white spots growing out on your fingernails, do you find that that's a pretty clinically important marker or a sign? Physical exam there finding. Are, there are nine different ways of um, that they can give you a hint as to zinc deficiency and every five or six years the zinc experts in the world get together and they evaluate it and they they for the last 40 years they said that the way to really the, the one test that would give you the best look at that would be plasma zinc by the way the bottom the, the one the one that has some validity but is the weakest is the taste test oh interesting we'll do a taste test uh the the if you have white streaks in the in, in the pink of your fingernails uh, and have that chronically over time, you're probably zinc deficiency. That, that, so it would be worth getting tested. That happens in about 40 or 50% of the zinc deficient people. So and for you, all- for you, Dr. Walsh, when you started taking the zinc, did you notice a difference? Did you get sick less frequently? Did you notice any changes? Well, he also found out I was under-methylated. So he fixed that at the same time. And I, I thought I was pretty healthy and everything was going well, but Two very strange things happened to me. Number one, I had had migraine headaches that were pretty nasty, but once a month I would get a really big time migraine headache, and I would have to lie on a, on a carpet and not and, and have no, no light or no sound, and then I'd be in trouble for a couple days. That sounds debilitating. Now, it went away. I haven't had one since Carl Pfeiffer gave me the treatment program for my methylation. Wow. And the other thing was I had really nasty seasonal allergies. I was living in Illinois, and in August and September, it was so bad, I always wanted to leave for about a month and go someplace without the, without the ragweed. I've never had that since I saw Pfeiffer with those criminals. So I, I, that, that was a change for me. Yeah, and we've talked about histamine being that marker for under and over methylation, and histamine has such a big influence, not only as a neurotransmitter, but also as something that comes out of mast cells and causes all those allergy symptoms. If we can balance that, kind of reduce the threshold, then less likely to get allergies. Yeah, most people who are undermethylated have allergies, inhalant allergies. Most people who are overmethylated have uh, food sensitivities primarily, and, and they're, they're sensitive to chemicals. Oh, interesting. So if we had somebody walk into our clinic and they were wearing a mask because of food sensitivities or, or they were worried about our, the chemicals from our carpet, they almost always were overmethylated, and a lot of that got corrected. Wow. The next time we would see them, they wouldn't be wearing the mask because they lost the sensitivities because the sensitivities were related to dopamine, norepinephrine, and a few neurotransmitters that, that were wrong, not behaving right. That's great. So, yeah. So, Dr. Walsh, where do you see the Walsh Research Institute has been around? You're the president of the Walsh Research Institute. What do you see the future of that institute being? Well, we have two major objectives. Uh, One goal is to train as many doctors as we can. 
I tried for 20 years to try to go straight to the leaders of um, the AMA and the APA, and I found I was hitting a brick wall. They're, they're just all so totally believing that the answer has to be a drug. That, that if you got somebody with a serious problem, you have to use a powerful drug to help them. Mm-hmm. And that's why my book is called Nutrient Power. I wanted to, the one message I wanted to give is that nutrients can have power. If only you knew which nutrients you needed to avoid or to take. Right. Um, so what I've decided eventually was I, 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 I felt if I was going to have a, um, a slogan on my, on my bumper of my car, it would be when the leaders, when, when the people lead, the leaders will follow. So I decided to, that if we could get enough, if we could get a thousand doctors, that would mean a few million patients. And I think that would just cause a groundswell of demand for this. And that's why we're doing that. Yeah. What do you see the challenges being? So when I was fortunate enough to take your training, I think there were probably a hundred docs or 90 docs and 70 of them were psychiatrists. There were a handful that were naturopathic doctors like me and then a bunch of functional medicine doctors probably made up the the difference. And I heard um, the psychiatrist talking about the challenges of implementing this in their practices, both inpatient and outpatient. What do you hear about that, the availability in um, psychiatric clinics? Well, first of all, they are our most enthusiastic doctors. I mean, everybody's enthusiastic. It's not easy being a psychiatrist today. Right. You're only allowed about 30 minutes to talk to a new patient, and you don't really get to know them. And you spend all your time wondering, what drug should I give them? Because that's really what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's not what's why in their they, tool belts. That's not why they went to medical school and, and studied all those years. It's a trial and error procedure, and, and I've, I've met many psychiatrists who said that they were thinking of, of leaving the field because of that. But now, now that they can, now our, our psychiatrists will see a person with a serious problem, do some inexpensive blood and urine tests, and, sort, and find out what neurotransmitters are, are either over or underperforming, and, and they know what to do. And so they, they, they're the most enthusiastic doctors we have because their situation. I think most of the doctors we see that are nutritional doctors or naturopaths, uh, they were doing fairly well before they came to see us. The psychiatrists had more to gain, and I think that's why that happens. They they, they have to be careful, though, that they don't, don't get um, uh, in trouble with the profession. And the biggest problem are the, are the really great doctors who have tremendous success and build a reputation and, and get a lot of attention. Because of that, they're the ones that jealous other Psychiatrists will uh, claim that they're doing something. They get targeted. Yeah. yeah, I have to yeah. tell you, Dr. Walsh, that as a naturopath, I got a ton of value out of your training, and my patients have as well. So don't leave us out. We, we do get a lot of, of value. Um, so with the psychiatrists, yeah. and do they have access to the nutrients? Do they end up getting access to the labs? Is that really difficult for them, or do you think that they're finding better ways to make sure that patients can get access to all of the, the logistics that need to be in place so that they can put your work into practice? Well, we're working on that. Uh, the, yes, we show them how to do the lab work. We recommend a couple of labs. In fact, uh, so we, we, under, on our website, we list, I think, probably five or six labs that we know are good. Um, there's one lab that has specialized in our protocol, and you're able to get most doc. We now can get uh, a whole panel of uh, tests that, that is really good that um, for only about $350, 
but if you if a doctor tried to order it one by one, it would cost them about fifteen hundred dollars. So yeah, so DHA Labs in Chicago, I that's who we yeah. use in my clinic, and we have had one. They're great. They great customer service, as affordable as possible. I I really have enjoyed working with them. Um, they make it as easy as it as it can be, and they also have programs where you can call them directly as a patient and get yeah. some of the lab work done, so that even if you were struggling to find a provider, you could at least show up with some of that information. Um, yeah, they, they have a system where, where somebody can uh, get the lab work done and they can find out whether or not they need a doctor who's a specialist in this. Right. If there are abnormals, they could seek out a I'm doctor, not, but they can get the labs we directly. Connected, we are not connected with the lab. We have no financial or other arrangement. It's just that they we think that they, they're, um, it's a good lab and they offer a lower cost. We're also trying to find a way to get the nutrients cheaper. Right now, uh, it, it, it can cost as much as $100 a month to do uh, to do a major treatment program. And so uh, we're talking to people now who are, who are uh, thinking of starting a business to mass produce these to, to really drop the cost. Great. So we're, we're trying to help them. Yeah. We're a public charity. You know? We're a charity, and we, we don't get involved commercially with any laboratory or with any, any manufacturer. So we, yeah. we, we, Dr. Walsh, it's been very clear that you are definitely in this to help as many people as possible and make it as accessible as possible. And I, I so appreciate that. That's definitely our goal, too. And the zinc, you know, not everyone is at $100 a month. I don't want to put that in anyone's mind that it That's might true. not be accessible. Something like zinc can be as much as $11, right? Very affordable and very easy to come yeah. by. If um, they need it. Yes. If they need it. Yeah, yeah, yes. definitely. So, and there's other nutrients. We want to round that out, of course, but some of these are actually very, very affordable. Um, yes. So I, I, I would encourage anyone who's listening who thinks that this might be beneficial to, to reach out either to the Walsh Research Institute or to DHA Labs, anywhere um, where you can get more information to figure out what might be relevant for you as an individual. Because that is one of the big takeaways as well, is that this is such individualized medicine. You really can't say, because you have depression, you need to take this, or because you have bipolar, you need to take this. Really, the next step is figuring out what the biochemistry looks like so that you can figure out the nutrients that you need to balance it. And I still recommend the book. If somebody wants to really understand Absolutely. things, they can read the book. And there's a chapter on you know, depression or autism or whatever. And uh, you can get that from our website. You can also get it from Amazon. If you buy it from Amazon, it'll cost about the same. And our charity gets 42 cents for every book they sell. If you if you buy it at the same price from from our website, it, it won't cost. I don't think it'll cost anymore. And our charity will get something like ten dollars. Tell me so, more about your charity. Well, we're a not-for-profit public charity, and uh, we're, we're a dedicated group. It's not just me. All, our staff is all dedicated to helping people. Everybody could make more money doing something else, uh, but, but it's, it's really uplifting when you see people get better. And you said uh, the goals of the, Walsh, the, the nonprofit, the Walsh Research Institute, are to train doctors, and you said there was one, another goal. I think I cut you off. Yes, you did. The, <laughs> <laughs> the other goal is research. Uh, I, I'm, I've always been an experimentalist, and I, I've got experiments going on. Like right now, we have a foundation grant from the Hilton Family Foundation, and we're doing a, a, what I think is a great experiment on schizophrenia. And I, I, I'm doing this together with a, a well-known university in Australia that specializes in epigenetic and genetic studies, and we're looking at the genetics of the three 
major phenotypes or types of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is not a single condition. It's right. at least three completely different disorders. And so we're, we, people have done genetic studies on schizophrenia, but they've always mingled them all together. So it blurs the data. They got three completely different conditions they're studying. So we're going to be the first people in history to study them individually. And we think we're going to find a lot of important information. We, we, we think we're going to be able to prove that it's epigenetic, That's which I think is going to lead to prevention. Any epigenetic disorder is relatively easy to prevent. And so we think that'll be an important thing for mankind. I think that it's very possible that schizophrenia may disappear from society. But we have to first understand what it is. Wow, what an impact. If you could be part of the team that makes schizophrenia disappear. That is, I mean, Nobel Peace Prizes or Nobel Medical Prizes all the way around, right? That would be incredible. We're worthy of it. We don't care if we get it. But the, uh, so can, the same thing might be true of autism. We're convinced autism is epigenetic. And what, an epigenetic disorder, once it strikes, you have maybe 100 genes that are misbehaving. You have a complex disorder. It's terribly difficult to treat. It's really hard to take a classic autistic or a schizophrenic yeah. and have them have a normal life. Uh, however, it's relatively easy to prevent. And there are blood tests you can do now that can identify somebody was about to have the onset of this condition, and we know how to prevent it. So I, I think that eventually, maybe 30, 40 years, I don't know how long it's going to take, but I think there won't be autistics in society. There won't be bipolar and post-traumatic stress. Dr. Walsh, I really appreciate how, you know, you take d- depression. You said there's five different types of depression, right? Uh, sometimes we, um, maybe in an effort to make it a little easier to grapple with. We oversimplify it and we just call all of these symptoms depression or we just call all of these people with this sort of symptom pictured schizophrenia and put them in these categories. And what you're saying is, hey, there's a little bit more complexity here and let's not get overwhelmed by the complexity. Let's break it down, figure it out, and then take some very you know, like in the case of depression, I know the schizophrenia piece is still getting worked out, but in the case of depression, it's very practical to use the, your work in clinical practice. It, even though there's five different types of depression, figuring it out is relatively simple. And then getting the nutrients on board, getting the treatment started, again, relatively simple. And just like what you're saying, schizophrenia, autism, very complex, overwhelming diagnoses that we can simplify, break them down and say, what are these mechanisms? What are the things causing this so that we don't even have to end up there at all. We can prevent this. I think autism is a lot like polio was. So similar. The parallels are right there. Back when polio, you're probably too young to remember this, but when I was young, it seemed like every month somebody in my town got polio. And this had been going on for 30 years. And these were these children who were in, 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 in crutches and in, in, in wheelchairs and and people who worked on trying to, to correct it and fix it. And it never really quite worked out. What happened was somebody under, finally discovered what it was. And once we knew what it was, they developed serums. And now uh, last year, there was not a single case of polio in the United States. Uh, I think the same thing is going to happen with some of these disorders. You have to first find out exactly what they are. And then you, you'll be able to... And then prevent them. Prevent them, yeah. Or even find better ways to treat them also. Great. Well, Dr. Walsh, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners? No, except I think that the future is really bright. The problem is that the research is is remarkable, especially brain research and even cancer research. 
and the epigenetics of, of those things is, is just advancing. The problem is that they're very slow to get into the into the into actual clinical practice where they can help people. Like right now, I think the the knowledge of cancer is, is advanced so dramatically now that they know that it's epigenetic in nature that uh, we already know how to prevent it, and nobody is interested in it. Seems like every the people that are working on this research are all trying to develop the next billion dollar drug. The cure, right? Or the... <laughs> so it to happen, and then and then they're trying to treat it. I think the answer is really prevention, because we know how to prevent it. I do appreciate that you give people so much hope, right? They don't have to live and suffer with these conditions, that there are ways to prevent them and treat them, that the next generation doesn't need to suffer. And there are practical ways to go out there and get some help. So I so appreciate your contribution to this line of work, to this field, um, both Personally, I, you know, I've got to see my patients and professionally, I've, I've been able to see my patients thrive in ways that they weren't able to before. So I couldn't be more grateful to, your, uh, to you for the contribution that you've made in my practice and to the 500 other doctors, excuse me, 680 other doctors that you've I, trained. I used, to, I used to get really excited every time one of my patients got better. Oh, and I, now I get I more think. excited. I get more excited when one of the do- patients and one of the doctors we trained got better. That makes me more excited. It's happening. So thank you so, so much, Dr. Welsh, for your time. It's just been an absolute privilege to get to chat with you. And um, hopefully we'll have you back. We'll expand some more on what you learn about schizophrenia. The more we learn about bipolar, we'll be able to help even more people who are struggling. Right. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for your effort to spread the good word. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye, Dr. Welsh. Thank you for listening to Collective Insights. For the full show notes on this episode and for more great interviews, visit us at neurohacker.com slash collective insights. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Want to learn a better strategy for mental well-being? We designed a beautifully illustrated 32-page guide integrating care for your mind, brain, body, and environment into a balanced approach for a better life. Download the foundational guide to neurohacking at neurohacker.com backslash guide.